Yesterday was my birthday. I turned 37 years old. And I got at least a few more years left. So y'all are stuck with me. But I wanted to begin today's sermon by sharing with you 21 things that I've learned in 37 years of living. Number one, asking for help isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of intelligence. Number two, never trade the mission at home for the lights and glamour of the road. Number three, keep a short account with people who have done you wrong. Number four, Forgive the unforgivable in others because Christ has forgiven the unforgivable in you. Number five, my personal mission statement, do things that matter with people you like. (laughs) Number six, it's okay to stop explaining yourself to people who are committed to misunderstanding you. Number seven, people rather work with you than work for you. Number eight, both the janitor and the CEO matter equally to God, so they should matter equally to us. Number nine, no one is too far gone for God to redeem. Number 10, God's approval isn't on my doing, it's on my being. Number 11, surround yourself with people who will remind you of who you are when you've forgotten. Number 12, God isn't looking for experts. He's looking for the available. Number 13, what is right isn't always popular, and what is popular isn't always right. Number 14, second chances is all God knows how to give. Number 15, never allow the church that you lead to become bigger than the church in your heart. Number 16, Blessed are the flexible, for they will not break. Number 17, communism has never worked anywhere it has ever been tried. Number 18, being special is overrated. Being ordinary and faithful is what counts. Number 19, Surround yourself with people who are more talented than you, for they will make you look a lot better than you actually are. (laughs) Number 20, in the end, it's not the years in your life that count, but instead the life in your years. And finally, number 21, to quote the guardian angel Clarence from my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Hey, this morning, I'm going to share with you out of the Gospel of Luke, and in doing so, we're going to look at chapter 1. I love the author Luke, a Gentile physician who is converted into the followership of Christ Jesus, who writes in a very particular fashion about the life and ministry of Christ. And in doing so, he writes my favorite book in the New Testament, the book of Acts, which tells us about the birthing of the first century church. I love Luke because he includes details in his gospel that other gospel authors overlook. 
He doesn't share anything that would contradict what Matthew and Mark say, but he stands alone out of the synoptic authors as one who includes details that I think are so interesting and help reveal the principle and character of a sovereign God. And in Luke 1, he begins to tell us a story about the birth of a baby. No, not the birth of Jesus, that will come next, but the birth of Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. And I couldn't think of a better text on a better day to preach than Luke 1 on the eve of our Pursuit Kirkland launch. And starting in verse 5 of Luke 1, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says this, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, she was also a descendant of Aaron. <laughs> you see, both of them, they was righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And in fact, they were very old. The Jewish literature tells us that Zechariah was 92 and his wife was 88 when these events occurred. The Bible says in verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot or by the casting of die according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now let me just stop there for a moment and make some observations. In the time of King Herod the Great, there was a man named Zechariah. During the reign of a wicked king, God raised up a righteous remnant. Hear me, friend. Herod would go down in history as the king who attempted to exterminate the next generation. When he heard that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he ordered the execution of all the newborn baby boys. Oh, it reminds me of what Pharaoh did in the Old Testament. Moses is born and an edict is released. Kill all the newborn baby boys. Do you know that that same spirit operates in the earth today? Every time the enemy catches wind that God is about to raise up a forerunner generation that will operate in deliverance for the region, the spirit of death seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is why I remain unapologetically pro-life. How can we claim to belong to Christ yet turn a blind eye to the destruction of the unborn? Oh, don't you see? We are in a spiritual war. It is not against a political party, but instead against the enemy of our souls who is seeking to abort the very thing that God is desiring to birth. But I have a great hope today. In the time of wicked Herod, God raises up a righteous Zechariah to serve as a prophetic sign that God is not done. And get this. In the Hebrew, Zechariah's name means God remembers. And Elizabeth's name means my God is abundance. 
Oh, Fred, when the enemy comes in like a flood, God remembers his abundance. When the devil tries to steal, kill, and destroy, God remembers his abundance. When a region like the Northwest is known for killing churches, running out pastors, and snuffing out revivals, God remembers his abundance. Why am I confident that tomorrow night God is going to start something fresh in Kirkland, Washington? Because in a time of spiritual drought, God has remembered his abundance. And friend, we haven't seen anything yet. See, Zechariah was on duty. It was his week to serve. He had been scheduled in the first century version of planning center for the temple that week. It was ordinary serving. It was ordinary faithfulness. It was routine obedience. It wasn't special. It wasn't conference week. It wasn't advertised on social media. There was no welcoming committees or participation trophy at the end of the day. And here's what I love. God meets Zachariah in the midst of the ordinary and says to him, I know it feels common to you, but it's always been sacred to me. Oh, could you hear God saying that over your life today? I know serving in the kids' ministry may not feel like the spiritual highlight of your week, but it's sacred to God. I know giving your tithe at the altar may not feel revolutionary to you, but friend, it is sacred to God. I know making the drive to this church, looking for parking, having to fight over finding a good seat, I know it's just part of your weekend routine, but I'm here to tell you today, it is sacred to a holy God. Remember, friend, no, we are not saved by good works. But in fact, we are saved for good works. See, I think for many of us, if we were to be honest, we expect to find God in the platform moments of our spiritual life. But the older I get, the more I realize God is most often found in the routine. He is most noticed in the quiet and regular moments of our day-to-day -day existence. And if you will just be faithful to keep showing up, showing up when you haven't yet received that miracle, showing up when you haven't yet got that restoration, showing up when you haven't yet got that breakthrough that was promised, one day God will take your ordinary and use it to display his extraordinary. And watch what verse 5 says. I love this. Come on, every word of God is inspired. Anywhere you cut this text, it bleeds the redemptive, atoning blood of the wounded lamb of the universe. And watch what verse 5 says. They belonged to the priestly division. Here is my fear. We got an entire generation of folks who want the benefit of belonging without the discipline of enduring. See, the Bible says they was childless. They was old. In those days, being barren was seen as a curse by God. They were thought of as those who had fallen out of favor with Yahweh. And yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth make the tough yet necessary decision. I'm going to belong to something bigger than myself and trust that God will one day use it to heal the pain that reverberates in our souls. I know it seems counterintuitive. I know it's hard to believe. But if you will trust God again, and if you will belong to a local church, God will use this community of saints to bring healing to the barren parts of your soul. 
No, it may not happen overnight. Yes, it, it will require that you do more than just casually attend and observe. But I would beg you today, don't reject the bride of Christ just because someone who claimed to speak for God hurt you in the past. And watch this. I love the details that Luke records. It says Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. But at the same time, they were childless. Hear me, friend. Their barrenness wasn't a reflection of their spirituality. Their exterior struggle wasn't the reflection of some interior problem. Their inability to conceive was a function of the fractured world around them. And it is high time to stop blaming God for stuff the devil broke. It is so interesting to me. Every time there's a natural disaster, the same folks who reject God demand his name to never be mentioned in public places, seek to erase his fingerprints from the founding of our nation. Those same folks are the first to blame God. Oh, that earthquake, it's an act of God. Oh, that tornado, it's an act of God. See, this is the reason I don't believe in God, because if there was really a God, how come bad things happen to good people? Because, friend, we live in a fallen world that impacts our natural existence. No, I can't make sense of the pain and trauma, but I simply refuse to blame the author of life when death rears its ugly head. Because I deal with something that others don't. Because I've experienced hardship that others won't. Because I've encountered pain that others can't. Therefore, this must be a sign from God that there is something wrong with me. May I submit to you today, hardship doesn't mean you've messed up. Difficulty doesn't mean God is upset. Struggle doesn't mean that you have missed it. It means that you are human. And until God calls you home, you will deal with a world that has been subjected to futility because of sin. And watch how the story continues in verse 10. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers, they was praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. And your wife Elizabeth, she'll bear you a son. You're to call him John. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want you to see this today. Zechariah wasn't attending a How to See Angels conference. He was simply serving in the temple as was his custom. And the scripture says God met a man who was standing at the altar. And see, the altar of incense was a symbolic place where prayers would rise to heaven. 
It was a reminder to the Jewish people that intercession was a two-way street. Not only did they pray for God's help in their time of need, but there was one who was interceding on their behalf before the Father day and night. Oh, friend, you can have great confidence today. Your prayers have been heard. Not only has it been heard, but God in this very moment is crafting a solution that will confound your own human ability to quantify or understand it. See, friend, in prayer, we give God what we cannot carry. And in doing so, we receive a peace that we cannot shake. The only thing that you will add to your life by worrying is sickness, disease, and stress. Worry will kill you if you let it. In fact, worry is like a rocking chair, a lot of back and forth, but no forward progression. See, worry takes back what you already said you've given to God. I can't fix it. I can't solve it. I can't force it. I can't fake it. So I'm going to give it to God in prayer and trust that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. See, friend, the birth of John the Baptist was prophesied 700 years before it happened. It was foretold in Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, and again in Malachi 4, that before the Messiah would arrive, God would raise up one who would prepare the way. And watch the activity that the angel says John will participate in. Number one, he will turn hearts. And number two, he will make ready a people. The longer I live, the more that I study and observe, I see this pattern repeat just prior to a fresh outpouring of God's presence. Hearts turn and people are made ready. See, John had a ministry of announcing, but Christ had a ministry of fulfilling. John was the friend, but Christ was the bridegroom. John was an echo, but Christ was the voice. And most importantly, the answer to Zechariah's prayer was the fulfillment to a prophecy that occurred seven centuries prior. Friend, prayer lives on forever because the word of God never returns void. They are offered in one generation and fulfilled by the next. What you are stepping into was promised to those who came before you. You thought it was just a house. You thought it was just a job. You thought it was just a prom promotion. You thought it was just a church. You thought it was just a relationship. But see, God is connecting your life story to a kingdom purpose by reminding you that your answer is the response to a question that was asked long before you ever arrived on this planet. John was in the womb of Elizabeth for nine months. But the promise of John was alive in the spirit for 700 years. And friends, you've got to see your life in this church not as some sort of manufactured result of our own power or ability to be impressive or do things that, quote unquote, nobody else is doing. No, what God is doing through this local church is a fulfillment of what he told the last generation that they died not yet receiving their promise. And now they cheer us on in the great cloud of witnesses celebrating that the promises of God are both yes and amen. That if God said it, in fact, by his right hand, he would perform it. He has never lost a battle and he won't start now. See, the enemy loves to celebrate short-term victories. 
Every time a church closes, the enemy thinks he's won. During COVID, the enemy thinks he's won. Every time a pastor gives up, the enemy thinks he's won. Every time a revival is about to start, but it gets snuffed out by the religious crowd, the enemy thinks that he has won. When Jesus was in the grave for three days, the enemy thought that he had won. But for this reason, the Son of God was made manifest to destroy the works of darkness. And I'm here to tell you, the kingdom of God, it is still advancing by force and the gates of hell still cannot prevail against it. And what God is doing here, I've carried it in my heart for eight years, but God has carried it in his heart from eternity past. And we are the fulfillment of what was promised to the heroes of the faith who walked before us. And what a privilege to connect our story to the God who is faithful to a thousand generations. Friend Kirkland is about picking up the baton and running. It's about refusing to give up on the promises God's made to this region. God is still looking for men and women who stand at the altar, undone in his presence. He is still looking for young Isaiahs who will say, God, here am I, send me. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it looks like. I'm unclean amongst a group of people who are unclean, but God, if you could use me, here I am. <laughs> Zechariah asked the angel, verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is a senior saint. <coughs> the angel said to him, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. How can I be sure that you're going to do what you said you would do? You've called me out of the boat to step on water, but how can I be sure I won't sink? God, you've asked us to expand, but how can we be sure that you got a building for us somewhere hidden in the thicket? God, I don't know how this is going to work, and I love how Gabriel responds. He doesn't say, because of my resume. He doesn't say because of my accomplishments. He doesn't say because of my denominational preference. He doesn't say because of my education. He doesn't say because of all the miracles that I've seen. He doesn't say because of my anointing or giftedness. He says because I have stood in the presence of an almighty God. And I want you to know that the resume that God is endorsing in this season is men and women who have been in the presence of God. I don't know their name. I don't know how they got on this stage. I don't know where they came from. I don't know what their background is. But these men have been with Jesus. Who are these people who turn cities upside down? Who are these leaders that want to grab the Northwest by the tail and not give up? Who are these people who will press through the crowd and grab a hold of his garment until virtue flows out? Who are these men? No, we get it wrong a lot. We've fallen seven times only to get back up. But what qualifies us to lead is that we have stood in the presence of an almighty God. 
And friend, when you get the presence, you get everything else. It is so precious. It is so worthwhile. It is the pearl of great price that's hidden in the ground that we have sold the field to purchase. There is no plan B. There is no turning back. There is no get rich quick formula, grow your church overnight. There's only humble hearts uniting in prayer, asking God to pour out once again his spirit without measure because without it we are lost. Oh friend, the church exists to glorify Jesus and in doing so bring people into an encounter with his presence. I am tired of wine skins without wine. I am tired of sails without wind. I am tired of whitewashed tombs that only serve as museums to what God has done in the past. Oh God, vindicate us without pouring. Pour out your spirit once again and turn the Northwest into a destination for revival. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now, Zechariah, you will remain silent. You will not be able to speak until this day happens. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I don't know about you, but when I read Luke 1, I am yelling at Zechariah. Quit asking questions. This is literally what you've been praying for. The angel Gabriel has just told you what's going to happen. Just say thank you and walk away. <coughs> Zachariah had been praying for years. He finally gets the prayer. He finally gets the answer that he's been praying for and then wants to argue with God about how it's too impossible for it to work out. And friend, this is us. And hear me. When you use words of unbelief instead of words of faith, it'll kill your ability to speak into the next chapter of your life. What's the result? You will be silent until John is born because unbelief has dominated the confession of your mouth. See, in Romans 4... Paul says that faith is the process or the action of declaring things that aren't as if they are, which means this, watch. Faith looks at nothing and declares that something is stirring. But watch, fear and unbelief does the opposite. Fear looks at something and says it is nothing. See, Zechariah couldn't see the miracle he couldn't understand the miracle. It was transpiring in the womb of his wife. It wasn't visible to the naked eye. And because it looked like nothing on the outside, Zechariah called it by what it looked like in the flesh. And in doing so, lost his ability to prophesy the future. You've heard it said before, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But I say to you, if you don't have anything faith-filled to say, don't say anything at all. Here's what I found. Lack of vision, lack of faith, lack of belief. It doesn't stop God. It stops you. Yeah. 
I love it when people come to this church eight years in. Oh man, pastors, buildings, beautiful. Wow, got all these people. This is incredible. All these campuses, all these visions. Wow, so excited. Love it. But I remember the early years, Lighty. I remember praying at this altar when we couldn't fit 100 people in this room. I remember feeling like I wanted to give up and quit. I remember feeling like a failure. I remember having to work three, four side jobs just to put food on the table. And God had to take me through the valley of the shadow of death to discipline my spirit in such a way that I could look at nothing and declare something is stirring. No, do not despise the day of small beginnings. For even faith like a mustard seed can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea. Now, I know it looks like nothing now. I know your family situation looks like nothing now. I know your financial prospects look like nothing now. I know it feels like your best days are behind you. I know that that relationship looks like nothing now. But friend, it's impossible to please God without faith. And if you would use your faith to declare something in the midst of nothing, God would cause what has been growing underneath the surface this entire time to sprout into an oak tree of righteousness that its leaves would be used for the healing of the nations. I know what they say about the Northwest. I know what they say about places like Snohomish, Seattle, and Kirkland, but I refuse to add my faith to the father of lies. I've got to add it to the father of truth. I know it looks like nothing, but something is stirring six feet under. Something is stirring right underneath my feet. I got a witness in my spirit that prophesies to a greater reality. God is not done. Friend, he is just beginning. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people's waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak. They realized he had seen a vision. For he kept making signs to them, but, but remained unable to speak. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. For five months, she remained in seclusion. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor. He has taken away my disgrace, my reproach, my shame from amongst the people. Notice verse 24. After this, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Why? Because the word of God to Zechariah carried with it a divine promise connected to a human responsibility. No, John the Baptist wasn't a virgin birth. John the Baptist wasn't an immaculate conception. Zechariah had a promise but it came with a sacred obligation. See, oftentimes our miracle comes wrapped in a similar framework. It's a word, but it requires some work. God gonna give it, but I'm gonna participate in it. Oh, I've asked God to do his part, but I refuse to ask God to do my part. I have a role to play in this Christian life. And with God's help, I'm gonna perform in accordance with what he has asked me to do. 
Now, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they was going to name him Watch after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No! He is to be called John. And they said to her, There ain't no one amongst your relatives who has that name. So they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Hear me, friend. The common and ancient tradition of the Jewish people is that the firstborn son would carry on the family name. The whole community expects him to be named Zachariah Jr. The entire neighborhood shows up to celebrate his dedication in the temple. And it is so shocking that when Elizabeth says his name is John, the community literally won't take her word for it. They go to her mute husband and ask for a second opinion. So he asks for a tablet to write on and says, his name is John. And as soon as he comes into agreement with the word that God has said, his mouth and tongue are set free and he begins praising God. Hear me, friend, as Zechariah is confirming his name, he is establishing his identity. This is who you are. This is what God says about your life. This is how you will operate in the future. Is that not the same role of earthly and spiritual fathers today? No, Russ, this is who you are. No, Russ, this is who you will be. No pursuit, this is what type of church you will become. Oh, could you make today the last day that you call yourself something you're not that you mislabel a season something it's not does God still have permission by his own spirit to establish the parameters of what lies ahead for you hear me Fred we ain't naming the new thing after the old thing oh this is our miracle baby we ain't gonna operate under a false or fractured identity this is our promised inheritance. His name will be John. He will be a generational curse breaker. He will cry out in the wilderness, repent and prepare for the ways of the Lord. And when Jesus shows up, he will say, your sandals I am not worthy to untie, for I baptize with water, but you will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And when I dunk my cousin Jesus under the Jordan River, a dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit will land on his shoulders. The heavens will open, never to be shut again. The voice of the Father will speak out, this is my Son in who I am well pleased. Oh friend, today, if you could agree with the name that God has given you, with the name that God has given your season with the name that God has given this church you could resist the temptation to call it what it's not I thought I was Jacob no your name is Israel I thought I was Saul no your name is Paul I thought I was the woman with the issue of blood. No, you're healed, redeemed, and set free. I thought I was the woman caught in the act of prostitution. 
No, shame has come off of you. Go and sin no more. I am not what I was. I am not what I have done. I am everything that God says that I am. And I refuse to call the new thing after the old thing. See, friend, I believe that God has us here on assignment in this region to turn hearts and to make ready a people. Why? Because we are in a season of suddenlies by which God desires to come quickly to his temple. And if we will do our part, God will do his. In revival, God makes the enemy pay for every year that he has stolen from God's people. Can't you see spiritual momentum is simply God catching up for lost time? God can do more with one moment in his presence than we can do with 10 lifetimes of great programs and well-made plans. I believe that we are in a season where it will be all of a sudden to people around us but to the people of God who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Oh, our ear was to the ground. We heard the sound of rain coming to the nation. I saw the cloud the size of a man's hand. It looked like nothing to everybody else, but I knew the waters were stirring. I knew this was my time to jump in. I knew that my calling and election was sure. I knew God had left me in the Northwest as a remnant seed for a reason. I know unless a seed goes into the ground and first dies, it produces no good thing, but God by his own spirit didn't bury me. He planted me and now it is time to bear fruit and fruit that remains oh it's all of a sudden oh it's all of a sudden oh it's all of a sudden and it catches us up in the presence the brilliance and the preeminence of the one that we worship I know everything seems to be happening fast I know we don't yet have all the details Oh, if I were to be honest, I got more questions now than I ever had before. But I refuse to expect the new thing to operate like the old thing. This isn't church as normal. This isn't a fun weekend conference. This isn't just pent up Pentecostal emotionalism. This is the house of the living God. We are in the business of kingdom expansion. Hearts are turning. People are being made ready because when God begins to move, either you get right or you get left out. And I want as many people in the river as we can get. Well, what if Kirkland doesn't work? Yeah, but what if it does? What if going forward for prayer at the altar doesn't work? Yeah, but, but what if it does? What if tithing doesn't bless me or prosper me, friend? Yeah, but what if it does? Refuse to name this season after any lesser experience that you have walked through. For the reign of the latter will in fact be greater than the reign of the former. And God has saved his best for last. I've been a student of revival for as long as I can remember. And friend, if this isn't it, it's the closest I've ever been. I feel like it's right within our grasp. 
Revival is an inheritance that God gives his people to steward. Not just to burn bright in one generation, but to pass off as a legacy to our children's children. That we would raise them in the house of God. That we would build a church that the next generation is excited to attend. That a revival wouldn't just build our credit. It wouldn't just build our platform. It wouldn't just build a resume. It would build a resting place for the Lord Most High. That God himself would make his dwelling place amongst men. That we could answer the question that is asked in the Old Testament. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Who will build a house for me? A number of years ago, I was looking to get into a doctoral program, and I applied at a seminary called Asbury in Kentucky. The reason why I applied is because as a student of revival, I had read the stories about an awakening on that campus. And although they ultimately didn't accept me into their program, God was working a deeper plan. And at that same time, Northwest University was opening up their own doctoral program. And by the grace of God and the friendship of people like Dr. Castleberry and others, they accepted me into that program. But my heart burns for awakening. It burns for the things of God. And late last week, I was just scrolling on social media and all of a sudden, I saw all these posts talking about Asbury Seminary. I said, this is so weird. I haven't thought about Asbury in years. And all of the reports, they were saying revival is happening again. They were just at a normal chapel. Just an ordinary week. A normal worship set. Micah, a normal campus pastor. They was just doing their thing. Get your chapel credit. Sign up. And all of a sudden, worship, it's like heaven came close. And they began a service and it hasn't stopped. And they're going now on 90, 100, 110 hours. Students from 21 other college campuses have shown up. Young people are crying out to the Lord, repenting of their sin, making their hearts right preparing the ways of the Lord. And I just begin to think in my spirit, oh, the God that I serve is no respecter of person. And if he would do it for Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, would he not do it for the Christian universities in our region as well? Dr. Castleberry called me a few weeks ago, said, hey, would Pursuit consider making a donation to help rebuild our chapel? As soon as he said that, I heard the Spirit of the Lord speak to me. It's not just a financial investment. It's a spiritual seed that you are sowing into rebuilding a resting place for the presence of God. So the next day, we wrote a check for 25000 to stand in support of their mission. But I was at the presidential banquet on Friday night in Bellevue, a group of friends. And that night we raised about $1.6 million to help fund future scholarships for young people. It was just a banquet. It was just a fundraiser. Yeah, I do it every year. It was just folks in suit and ties sitting around tables, bidding at the auction table, raising their paddle pledging their time, talent, and treasure to building Christian higher ed institutions.
At the end of the service, the Corlons choir got up and they began to sing. And I couldn't help but feel the Spirit of God hit that room. I know I'm a little bit wild. That's just how God's made me. But I couldn't sit. I couldn't just observe. I had to stand. and I had to raise my hands to engage. And I texted Dr. Castleberry in the middle of the fundraiser. And I said, I don't know about you, but I feel like God, by His own grace, may be starting a similar movement at Northwest. I feel like maybe we're coming into a season where we're going to see revival fire spread across colleges, both secular and Christian. I'm foolish enough to believe that God could start it in Kirkland. It could spread to the University of Washington. It could end up at SPU. It could spread to Wazoo and Spokane. It could hit Gonzaga and Pullman. I'm just foolish enough to believe God is not done yet. And this morning on my way to church, I just couldn't shake it. You know how when God possesses you with a word and you just can't shake it. <laughs> so I texted Dr. Casimir. I said, I don't know where you at or what you're doing. But could you join me at the 1030 service? Could we add our faith together? Could we pray? Could we contend? Could we believe that now could be the time where God, in even greater measure, pours out His Spirit again on young people all across this region. Come on, I'm going to invite Dr. Castleberry to the stage, Dr. Bender, Dr. Cawthorn, campus pastor at Northwest, Pastor Micah, and your wife. Come on, I feel like this is important, Fred. I believe that God is raising up this church to be a place where folks from the nations fly in to get oil in their lamp. We're already seeing it, but we're going to see it in even greater measure. And I wanted today, just as an act of faith, to lay hands on these leaders who represent the leadership of this school. And I want to add our yes to their yes and believe that even when it's been forgotten by man, it's been remembered by God. And I'm telling you, there is a John the Baptist that is growing in the womb of this region. There is a John the Baptist that is growing in the womb of Northwest University. And I just wanna add our faith together to believe that now, now, now could be the time where God rends the heavens and pours out a blessing that we cannot contain. I don't need the credit for it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I want to pray. And I want to prophesy today. And I want to believe that God is not done with Kirkland. <coughs> I think it is of prophetic and significant importance that tomorrow night Pursuit launches in Kirkland. Yeah. And we're going to partner with every boat in the region. And our cry is going to be revival in our day and reformation in our lifetime.
Come on, Fred, would you extend your hand to these leaders on stage? Come on, let's pray the prayer of faith. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, God, I ask that you would do more in this university than you've ever done for us. God, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in this next season that not only would they know what to do, but they would know how to do it. I declare over Northwest University, my God will supply everything that you're in need of according to his riches and glory. Oh God, today we add our faith together and we strike the ground. We strike the ground for revival. We strike the ground for outpouring. We strike the ground for reformation. And we say, God, do it for us. Revive your work in our day. Do not pass us by. Forget not your benefit. God, do it for us. God, do it for Dr. Castleberry. God, do it for Northwest University. And for your inheritance, may God give you the nations. May God give you the lost. And may he vindicate. May he vindicate us with another great outpouring in this region. Hey! Say, retete. Hey, Ratash, hey, Sabababa, hey, do it for Dr. Bender, do it for that program, do it for the school of ministry, hey, Shabara, Retete, Sabababa, Sikay, Sebebe, Sabababara. Now, come on over, Pastor Mike and his wife. They came today, they got a six-week-old baby. Mike is the campus pastor at Northwest University. I heard this in my spirit during worship, Micah. I heard what Paul said to Timothy. There was a faith in your grandmother Lois. I seen it in your mother Eunice. And I am convinced that it lives in you. And I'm here today to affirm and validate the anointing and gifting of God, which is irrevocable and without repentance. And I declare over you, Micah, I am convinced it lives in you. I am convinced the Spirit's power lays residential inside of you. I am convinced you will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Yeah. I am convinced God will give you a fresh dream yeah, and a fresh vision. I am convinced that God will make you a catalyst at Northwest University and that God will use you as a battering ram in the spirit to break open ancient doors and ancient gates. And so I say, God, release it in even greater measure now in Jesus' name. Hey, Sababa, Hey, Come on, I just want to confirm that. I saw, when I turned my heart towards you, I saw an, uh, a, a generational weapon. I saw an ancient generational weapon. It was like a battle axe that you held in your hand. And God says, I'm sharpening you for this season. And you are going to raise your hand and see the delivering power of God. Just like Moses, there's a generational hey. gift inside of you that God has given you. And he's releasing it now over you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, keep praying, friends. Whoa.
Dr. Dr. Castleberry, what I heard, I heard the Lord say, you're a castle builder. And there's an apostolic anointing on your life. You see with eyes of the apostle to build as a wise, like Paul said, a wise master builder. And when other people are looking at how great the building looks on the top and from the front, you're going, oh yeah, but what's the foundation like? Right. You have a unique gift and skill set to see and set things and align things right. I saw a plumb line in your hand and God says, get ready for this next season of apostolic building because you're a castle builder. You're a builder in the spirit and God is releasing you alignment. I see divine alignment coming in a fresh new way. And you're gonna say, people are saying, oh no, it's gotta look like this. It's gotta look like that. It's gotta be this color. It's gotta, you say, no, let's go to the foundation. And you're taking a movement back to the foundation. Oh, you're taking a movement back to its foundation. And you're saying, no, this is the roots. This is the way it should go. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is how we build. This is how we plant. This is how we set things in order. And God's given you a gift to set things in order in this region. And we bless you now in Jesus' name. Come on, I just hear the Lord saying over this leadership team of Northwest University, I have brought you together with divine purpose for this season. It's not like an accidental coalescing of people. No, the Lord has sovereignly brought the right teachers, the right professors, and the right deans in this season. And I hear the Lord saying, Dr. Castleberry, I'm bringing you a team to redig ancient wells, to remind the assemblies of God of who they have always been. And I just hear the Lord even saying, even the revivals that you were a part of in South America, even the things that you have seen all across Latin America and been a part of, I hear the Lord saying, watch what I will do, but it is coming in even greater measure. There is a redigging of ancient wells. There is an unlocking of oil. There is an outpouring of God's Spirit that I believe will eclipse even the most wild things that you have seen. And I heard God say, I'm giving you the hearts of the people as they were with Moses, so they will be with Joshua. I heard the Lord saying, I am adding Aaron and her in this season to uphold your hands for the Lord will give you victory. I call in new buildings to that campus. I call in new students to that campus. I call in a legacy of revival and outpouring that regardless of what degree those students get, they will have known that they have stood in the presence of God. I'm declaring increase over your chapels. I'm declaring increase over your Monday night meetings. I am declaring that when kids walk into that building, that what is being done in the flesh, it's a remodel. It's also being done in the spirit. God is saying, I am rebuilding. For what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? Watch what I will rebuild. Watch what I will rebuild. For one puts a thousand to flight, but two puts ten thousand. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. And so I pray for the alignment. I hear the Lord saying even over your team, not only have I sovereignly added, I've sovereignly taken. And there's even been seasons where you felt like Gideon. God, we're growing in reverse. And God said it looked like checkers to you, but it was chess from the Lord. It was divine strategy, aligning hearts together for the purpose of agreement. And I feel like the Lord is even speaking over you, Dr. Castleberry and this leadership team, that this first season that you have been at 
Northwest has been like clearing the rubble. It's been that hard, labor-intensive work of clearing out the bramble. But I heard the Lord say, it was a setup for what's coming next. Do not say four months and then the harvest, but lift up your eyes for the fields. They are ripe. So we say, God, may you so deposit a seed in the soil of Northwest University. Would you water it with the tears of intercession? Would you cause it to grow into fruition by the word and the work of your spirit? And in doing so, may Northwest be a university where both the word and the spirit change lives. And I say increase. Listen, I see healings happening at chapel, radical. I see young people coming to the stage saying, can I have the microphone? I need to publicly repent for sin. I see restoration and reconciliation happening. And I heard the Lord say, my vindication will not be righting the wrongs on social media. My vindication will not be the building of a resume. It will be an unmitigated outpouring that no man can take credit for that positions Northwest University as the preeminent Christian institution on the West Coast. So we call it forth by faith today. And God, we bind every work and life from the enemy. I say you will not grow weary in well-doing. I say you will not give up. I say you will endure hardship as a good soldier. And I say God will vindicate you with awakening. So God, may it be so. And whether any of those students end up in pursuit or not, I don't care. But God sent revival to every church, every denomination, every congregation, every university classroom. I see kids going in for a classroom session and the Spirit of God interrupts the professor. I see kids on their hands and knees crying out to God. I see chapel services that start, but they don't end. I see young men and young women seeking the Lord while he may be found. And I say what was true at Asbury, may it be true in even greater measure at Northwest University. In Jesus' name.